The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone, and uh, welcome to Spirit Matters 2.0, the (laughs) reboot of the podcast that I co-hosted with uh, Dennis Ramundi for seven years. That iteration has ended, but uh, the archive lives on at spiritmatterstalk.com and our YouTube channel of the same name. So please go and help yourself to about 300 interviews with uh, exceptional spiritual teachers and experts, including our today's guest. It's all free, just like this new version. And we're here continuing the tradition of conversations with a diverse range of wise people. And today's wise person is Robert Thurman. Okay. I'm going to introduce uh, Bob. He was a professor in the Department of Religion at Columbia University for 30 years until he retired in 2020. And he's best known, of course, outside of academia as an expert on Tibetan Buddhism, a popular public speaker, author of many books, and most recently, Uh, a uh, user-friendly interpretation of key Buddhist precepts called Wisdom is Bliss. He's also the founder of two nonprofit organizations, Tibet House, which preserves Tibetan culture, and the American Institute of Buddhist Studies at Columbia, and is uh, famously a good friend of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me. Um, nice to be on 2.0. It's really good. Yes. And um, if you don't mind uh, repeating a story you've no doubt told many, many times, um, you were the first Westerner to be ordained as a monk in the Dalai Lama's tradition of Tibetan Buddhism obviously uh, later returned to householder life and academia. But for those of us, uh, for those listening who are not familiar with the story, can you tell us how does (laughs) this one become the first Buddhist, uh, first monk in that tradition? How did that come about? Well, you have to be a stubborn idiot. (laughs) And uh, because my uh, original root uh, teacher uh, a venerable Geshe Wangyal, who was a Kalmyk Mongolian who lived and studied in Tibet for 35 years before emigrating to the U.S. in the 1950s. Uh, he, you know, he's the one who sort of helped to kindle my early enthusiasm for Buddhist studies. I mean, changed my life. He was my spiritual father. And uh, But he told me, don't be a monk. You know, I was determined to be a monk. The minute I really discovered the Dharma and emptiness and compassion and et cetera, and all of the, and the Tibetan language and et cetera, and Sanskrit. Uh, and he said, well, I know you want to be a monk and that enthusiasm is good and you're already understanding a bit, quite a bit. But the point is, I can tell you as an older experienced monk, that you're not going to want to stay a monk mm. because there, we don't have the institutions here. And and then at one point, he a little bit fooled me. I think he wanted me to get to know the Dalai Lama, some karma we have, I think. But he a little bit tricked me. He said, well, I kept bugging him for the two years I first studied with him, almost two years. And then he said, uh, well, okay, stop bugging me. I'm not making you a monk. But maybe Dalai Lama will, so I can. I have to go there to Dharamsala, and I have to go to India to do some things, help some old old monks who who depend on me, Mongolians and so on. 
and I will see the Dalai Lama, and I'll introduce you to him. Maybe he'll make you a monk, he said. So, oh, great, I'm going to go see a monk. So then I got some, I had to get my grandfather to pay me a ticket and so on. And uh, when I got there, he introduced me, you know, you know, very smart, intelligent, but a little bit crazy American boy. Uh, but really good in uh, Dharma, really loves it, uh, genuinely, and uh, speaks Tibetan already, your holiness. And he's desperate to be a monk, but don't make him a monk. <laughs> he says he's not going to manage it to stay as a monk in America and so on, where he lived, where he was born. So don't make him a monk. But then he said, I'm just an old Bengalian. You're the Dalai Lama. You decide sort of thing. He then left it at that. And I was like looking angrily at him. You know, don't make him a monk. You know, because he brought me to be a monk, you know. So then I stubbornly insisted. Dalai Lama was not in a rush. And he uh, he and I developed a really buddy-like friendship to 20-year-olds, 20-some-year-olds. He's a four or five years older. And... Uh, uh, like a, you know, he and then we both studied with his teachers. I mean, not in the same classroom, but we studied with his teachers. And he and I, like, you act about the universe, you know. It was like mm -hmm. it's Tibetan, you know, at, the, at that point. And he was more new. He was only a couple of years out and escaped from Tibet. So then, sure enough, in about two years, he finally ordained me in early '65. And by mid, by late '66, I knew the old Geshe was right. The, the Geshe put it one way. I was memorizing. I went to, I went on a mission for the Tibetan government, translating into Spanish for a lama. And then I was back temporarily at the monastery in New Jersey, where I had first started with the Geshe before going back to India. And I was memorizing late at night, memorizing. And he comes in and interrupts me. He was like to interrupt me when I was meditating or memorizing something. What are you doing? He says, I said, well, what do you mean? I'm memorizing such and such a Nagarjuna text. Well, why are you doing that? So I said, well, I want to be a, a geishi. I want to get my geishi degree, which is like the monk PhD in, in the, some schools of Tibet. <laughs> it means a spiritual friend, Kalyana Mitra, you know, but it's like a PhD degree. Hmm. You have to memorize a whole bunch of books. And then he looks at me and he says, well, that's great. He says, but uh, can I ask you this? I said, well, he says, do you know anyone who needs a white geishi? <laughs> he said, and I was like, you know, because at that same time, I was beginning to have a few doubts back in the States and also because of the mission in Argentina, noticing how a, a white guy with a shaved head with a big kind of lump on top of it, kind of I have a ridge on top of my head and sort of a big bony head and so on, <laughs> one eye and like staggering around in drag, as my daughter said years later, <laughs> considered to be a robe, you know, like a dress. Uh, uh, they they don't really, they didn't really think it's something admirable at that time. I mean, nowadays, actually, some there are some yeah, people yeah. who kind of carry it. The nuns are better looking. <laughs> and, uh, but in a way, nobody, you know, people just don't expect that. And the, and, um, you know, it's what I had to beef I have with the three-year retreat people who are not only monks, supposed to be monks, but they're supposed to be Buddhas. Mm. And meanwhile, they, they don't have a psychology degree or any degree to get an academic teaching job. So the few of them who can write books like Surya Das or something like that and have a have a have a following, they, they can live. But the other ones, there's no livelihood and there's no real Tibetan monastery in the whole United States that really welcomes monks. There are some mm -hmm. really two two great nunneries, one in Newfoundland, well in Canada, and one in Washington State. But there's no real there's a Tibetans have ethnic community kind of little monks, and some monks come over there, you know, the ethnic Asian uh, Buddhist sort of Tibetan groups. But uh, there's no and and the. Uh, Dharma people in the West are more or less the lay teacher. The ex-monk is sort of the ideal, you know. You know, mm. pretty like all the Hippopathonites are the ex-Burmese monks, you know, Goldstein and Cornfield and so forth. Mm. And uh, and we don't, and people, in fact, they mostly have theories, a lot of them, that the new Buddhism is better for lay people, you know. And, you know, become more respectful to women and the, and the monk thing, who needs it type of routine. And I had a shock after I quit in that 
my knowledge of the history and also my activism in America, peace movement. And I've, I realized kind of finally early on, I would have been tempted, I think, for the, oh, yeah, we're the new lay Buddhism, you know, of America, Western Buddhism, you know. But then when I really studied, I realized that the monastic order in Buddhism, you know, the, the Sangha, the mendicant order, better said, is the method of demilitarizing societies institutionally. Mm. I was in a talk by, actually, I just his name just fled my mind, but he was a sociologist at Columbia University, wonderful guy, but he was very activist. And I, I was at some peace talk of his in the 70s. And he said, you guys are peace, you know, against the Vietnam War, peace doing, and that's great. And you go down to the Pentagon, give them flowers, put them in the barrels of the guns, but then what? Then And maybe you block their traffic to go in and they take a day off. But the point is the war movement has industries and the, and the pentagons and huge institution. What is your peace movement institution? Then mm. you as individuals, as amateurs, you know, type of thing, where's the professional peace movement? And something went click and I realized, of course, that... You know, the Japanese Meiji uh, government who decided to fight off the imperialists, the European imperialists and Americans, they would have to industrialize their military. They completely shut down all the monasteries. They made the monks marry. They made the abbots become the private. They registered every monastery as a lay house with the abbot being the owner. Do you know what I mean? They completely, they took the tribal... Uh, deities, you know, the local, uh, you know, Hachiman, the war deity, others, you know, Shinto, and they put them in Shinto shrines. They had been embedded in B Buddhist temples before that for, for, for a thousand years. They took them out and made separate Shinto nationalist temples and uh, basically realizing that the, socially speaking, a monastic, a powerful monastic order, there's where your male machos go, Oh, they're not available to go be Rambo for you mostly, and they can and they can protest you and be a bit Ramboish against some sort of violence, because their whole thing is nonviolence basically. Mm. Even though you have some samurai formally become, you know, the shoguns put them in the monasteries to get them out of fighting over what this daimyo versus that daimyo, and that uh, they did do use that to sort of calm the samurai. They used Zen to do it, but then they didn't want monks because a government can control a population when the when the individual only has a family to defend and to threaten. But the monk has no family, so they're kind of macho-like, and they're looking at life and death as the great matter, you know. And so they can protest and put their lives out there to not be a soldier, you know. Well... The government knows that, and that's why Tibet was so weak, you know. Mm. And, they, and the 13th Dalai Lama tried to even start a defense force and the monks came and protested him. Huge thousands, 10,000 monk monasteries, you know. Well, the monastery's loss was uh, our gain when you uh, came out <laughs> and, uh, and became uh, Bob Thurman, the uh, popularizer, you could say, the yes. uh, translator of esoteric Buddhist texts for the right. rest of us. And I know, but I became unpopular by saying that actually the monks were still important, you know, for a Protestant, <laughs> a Protestant ethic, no free lunch society. They, people didn't like to hear that. I'm but sure. I didn't mean to interrupt, but go ahead. The, the application of, of Buddhism to Western life, uh, like the application of yoga and Hinduism, uh, is, is a, a great historic phenomenon. And I, yeah. I've been intrigued by your last book, uh, wisdom is bliss. The, the subtitle is four friendly fun facts that can change <laughs> your life. And when I was thumbing through it, I realized, well, wait a minute, those four friendly fun facts sound like something, you know, a headline on a, a self-help magazine. Those That's are the right. four noble truths. That's right. And Bob Thurman has translated the four noble truths into very accessible English. So Tell us why the term four friendly fun facts instead of four noble truths, and maybe give us the uh, 
the uh, Cliff Notes version of what for, yes, for people elevator. who are not familiar with the four. Yes, notes. yes. Well, just let me. The elevator pitch is that you know everybody has been fussing over the first noble truth or yeah. friendly fun fact, which is the one that isn't fun, which is the truth of suffering or the fact of suffering. And uh, if you're unenlightened, you know, the unenlightened life is suffering, which uh, I always like to say is less pessimistic than Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living, he said. Yeah. He never said the unenlightened life is not worth living. He just said it will be it will be frustrating. It will be stressful. It is not it is not fun. And that, and what you when you have fun in it, it doesn't last. And so that's called the suffering of change. And you then want more of it, so you become more dissatisfied. So my and actually just to, so I decided this. So the noble in the noble truths is used by Buddha in his era because they kind of liked their nobility mm. because they had a strong concept of noblesse oblige, and that the nobility was protecting the people, you know, the warrior class, because they weren't heavily warmongering in the Vedic India. They they came from warmongering people, but they were a little more calm. India was such a rich place agriculturally that they didn't have to fight too much. They dominated the local people, but they'd already done that. So Noble had the idea of someone who cares for you with noblesse oblige. And then truth in English has a double meaning, as does the word satya, where it can mean a propositional truth, like something that you believe or disbelieve, or it can mean a reality, you know. So, so the so therefore, I long before I like to go to fact for the four noble truths for satya there as being because sat is the verb to be. So satya is what ha, what has to be, so to speak. It's what mm. the state of affairs is. It's a condition, and it's not just a proposition. I think the early translators like to call it noble truth because they were insisting Buddhism is primarily a religion because they had people with monks' robes and living in sort of nearby temples. And then they thought in those days that religion is a belief, a credo. Mm -hmm. You have to believe in something. But the four noble truths or the four friendly fun facts, are they don't ask you to believe it. They ask you to acknowledge the suffering, to understand its cause, to experience its its uh, its uh, solution or the, the freedom from it, and then to practice the path, which is an educational curriculum of how you get to understand it. Just so the second one is the cause of the first one, the fourth one is the cause of the third one. And so it actually is a and actually it is the model in Indian medicine of a medical diagnosis. Mm. So symptom, you know, diagnosis, prognosis, and therapy, you know. Ah, and they, they consciously say that themselves. So it's not just I believe in the four noble truths, it doesn't work like that. But that what that's what you needed from the point of view of someone like Reese David or some of the early Stalinese translators and so on, because this is a religion, so they've got to believe in something, because that's what you do in a religion. Whereas Buddhism, primarily, you have to understand something, and you have to understand it by experiencing it, even beyond just repeating a formula, you know. So, yeah, so and... if I really like fact, you know. So then, then, the, then friendly, meaning from someone who's your friend, who cares for you. I think in our situation, we don't necessarily think of a noble as being nice. We think of them as oppressive. We're Americans, you know, egalitarians, you know. So noble, who needs a noble, you know, unless unless you, you know, you want to marry a European noble or something. You know? <laughs> and uh, otherwise, you know, even we, we love Meghan and Harry. They're running away from that uptight palace over there. <laughs> Went to Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, what they meant by noble is someone who cares for you. So therefore, I thought friendly is really good. It was a friend should be. I mean, you should care for your friend, you know, if you, you don't want a vampire as a friend. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that was the friendly part. Now, the fun part in regard to the third one, I agree, is a little difficult, except right away I did a podcast in my feeble effort to publicize the book because I couldn't do a book tour. Uh, I had a podcast with Sharon Salzberg, and she asked me, you know, our great Vipassana teacher, and she asked me, how can you call it a fun fact, the truth of suffering? And But luckily, I had her there and got her chuckling, because in her book on faith, where she tells her childhood, 
she was attracted to Buddhism because this guy said, "You're it's normal that you suffer. Right. You don't know what's going on. You're going to suffer. And she had a really hard childhood, in fact. I mean, she still has it, right? It's her past. And uh, she's a wonderful, grown-up, and happy person now. But, you know, it was, but it was fun for her to discover that she wasn't the only one who was suffering, that mm. everybody was suffering. And her hard one actually made her look take things more seriously. That's how she went out and learned to really change her mind and meditate and become the marvelous person and teacher that she is. So she chucklingly, chucklingly admitted that it was fun when she discovered that she <laughs> should be suffering. <laughs> and meanwhile, you think that Buddhism is pretty popular in the U.S., and they're all being told they're supposed to suffer. They think that they wrongly maybe understand it like that. And yet they think it's fun. I don't know why, you know. The Pope didn't. In the Pope's book, you know, on faith, he did what the doorway of faith something, you know, written. The, the part on the non-Christian religion was written by Ratzinger when he was the Grand Inquisitor, who later became Pope Benedict, right? And he, and he says, how oh, those poor Buddhists, I feel so sorry for them. They think they just have to suffer all the time. You know, isn't that terrible? Meanwhile, we in the Vatican are just having a ball here. <laughs> we're so happy. He's saying, goodness, thanks, Jesus, we're just happy. So not that Jesus was that happy for a moment, at least, anyway. So, so, um, but he was happy when he rose back up to show after they showed them that they couldn't kill him. Of course, he was very happy, except in Mel Gibson's movie, where he still looked cranky <laughs> and grumpy. Even the, even even resurrecting, he looked grumpy, and he was mad, you know, sending lightning bolts up to up to people. Anyway, uh, yeah, um, I thank you for for qualifying the first noble truth by saying the unenlightened life yes, is inevitably course. suffering because you exactly. hear all the time Buddha says you know life is suffering and it seems so bleak and so dark and and it, and then because people don't then follow to the fourth <laughs> right exactly that's right <laughs> um, so i decided you know after all buddhas you know nobody it didn't take a buddha to discover suffering just stub your toe you know that's, that's it. right and uh, and the point is what he discovered and the reason he made a fuss about waking us up to the suffering of normal behavior by an egocentric person, was that he discovered there's a way to get free from it. That's, that's why he's lasted. He's lasted the run, you know, 2,500 years or whatever, you know, because people want to be free and they want to be happy. And that's that. And he said, yes, you can. And that's really good, you know. He didn't change once he got elected. No, we can't. Like some other, yes, we can't people. <laughs> I know. Speaking of uh, getting out of the suffering, um, yes, you um, the fourth noble truth, which is the, the eightfold path, right. in your book become um, what you call a highway with eight lanes, and yes. and you change the terminology. Usually, the terminology of the of the eight uh, uh, the eightfold path begins with the word right. Yes. And right understanding, right thought, right yes, speech, yes. etc. Exactly. You change that. Tell yes. us why. Okay, yes, that's a great question. Well, because right right is not wrong. So first of all, I didn't change it because right is wrong. I changed it because right and wrong sort of fit with the idea of following a rule. You follow the rule and it's right, and you're doing right, and you go against the rule and you're wrong. And and that's sort of the connotation of right and wrong. And, and then especially with ethics in Western and spiritual people in ethics and Western, they have the we have commandments. So then they're given the rules by an authority, and you are right. If you follow the authority, you're wrong if you don't. So but Buddhism shattered that, although I, I'm, we must really be clear that the Buddhists never said there are no such thing as gods. They're not modern California materialists. He was not, and he was not. It's just that he said the, 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 he didn't blame any one God for having created the mess, you know, and yet still claiming omniscience, like people think about omniscient deity, creator deities. So he said Brahma, who is the biggest one in his time, is, didn't create it. Actually, Brahma himself said so in the Buddhist literature. He, he said he asked Buddha 
to tell people I didn't create it because he didn't like people being mad at him when they had a horrible outcome, you know, something went wrong, you know. So so what the reason I did was that it seemed to me to really emphasize the fact that everything Buddha does, the Dharma itself that he taught, which he gave a new weight to an old word, but not a very heavily used word, by the way, that very interestingly, you know, Patrick Olivelle, the great Vedist translator, the Vedic literature translator, uh, he was surprised. He wrote an article late in his translating career saying that he only found 17 mentions of the word Dharma in the Vedic, not only the Vedas themselves, but the literature, because the word they use for sort of reality and for, you know, truth in that sense was urta, R-T-A, or use R as a vowel, urta. And they didn't use Dharma. And he said that 17 plans were used. It had to do with royal uh, coronations, rituals, and it had to do with duty. So it was a very, what we would call, pattern-maintaining meaning of Dharma based on the dir, um, etymology of it as, as holding. Now, Buddha added to that, He did, that still stays, you know, like words have multiple meanings in any dictionary, you can see that. And what he added was the idea that Dharma is reality itself, which holds us because we are part of reality. But his his view, vision of it was it holds us in freedom and it holds us in freedom from suffering. And Nirvana is actually the real reality of the world. And samsara is an unreal, less real reality. So therefore, the more reality, the more reality you become aware of, uh, the more the more happy you are in that sense, you know. And then this contradicts. That's why wisdom is bliss. Title, you know. I wanted to actually call it wisdom is the bliss when it migrated to that sort of general type of word, because I wanted to be show that it was the contradiction of ignorance is bliss, which is a expression we have, but we don't want to know what is the real thing if it's not nice, you know. <laughs> I don't want to know, you know. No, officer, I didn't know it was a 45 mile an hour speed limit, you know, like, but then ignorance didn't help there with a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas reality of knowing it's a speed limit and not getting a ticket is the is the is the thing. So I'm saying it's another one of my slogans, Buddhism really is realism which of course goes against our modern secular materialist idea that religions are unrealistic and they're nice, but they're like psychologically comforting to people. So, okay, they can stay there, even though they're all filled with superstitions and we scientists have discovered there's no God and there's no mind and there's no spirit and blah, 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 which is what they haven't discovered. It's just their dogma, you know, but so, so therefore I really loved it. And I must say, I got it from Alan Wallace. Hmm. I didn't have. I didn't just think of it myself. I, he doesn't even use it anymore because he wants to cater to the habitual translation of the Pali people, where they do think they're following Buddha's authority a little bit more than the Mahayana people do. And uh, <laughs> so he used it once, you know, realistic speech or something, you know. And I, and then he dropped it. But I decided to really go with it. So you have it's stronger and stronger in my mind. And I think it's really, it's not only useful and it's good for making it sensible for people with common sense, but actually it's 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 accurate, it's realistic. Because of the 11 meanings of Dharma, say in Vasubandhu's fourth century or fifth century work, the top five are path, practice, virtue, teaching, and then, but the ultimate one is the reality taught, which is nirvana. And therefore, and the third, and he's very clear, Buddha, in certain dialogues, that 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 um, the um, uh, Dharma is reality. I'm sorry, the third noble truth is reality. So, one the highest meaning of Dharma is Nirvana, because actually Nirvana is reality, and that, of course, that's in the Mahayana non-dualist version of Buddha's teaching, which, of course seems more philosophically doable. And in fact, mm. it did sweep India, but it never contradicts. It doesn't contradict much of the intent of the dualistic version of Buddha, you know, allowing people to think Nirvana is somewhere else. Because Buddha was a little vague about that. He would not really directly answer that question, you know, like, 
is there a self after nirvana? Do you go somewhere else? You know, he didn't. He didn't. And actually, you find so many hints. I do, as I think I wrote in that book. There's so many hints of the. Uh, yes, it's okay. My watch is concerned. There's so many. Next time. Don't worry. Next time. <laughs> uh, um, there are so many um, hints, even in in the Theravada dualistic version of Buddhism where nirvana and samsara are just different, uh, that really there is no kind of space of vast apartness from the world, where you then are in a new world, which is a nirvana world. They, you know, they hint that that's not the case, you know, in many ways. But I, I won't go into a long rant and rave about it, but I could. But, but, uh, but on the other hand, it is so difficult for the sensitive person who is agonized by the thought of suffering, and then particularly when they realize the law of conservation of energy applies to their consciousness, to the energy of their consciousness, and therefore there's no escape into nothingness, which is obvious, actually, <laughs> except for modern culture, which thinks it's obvious that everything is nothing, and that's why they're wrecking things, you know, recklessly. But the point is... Uh, the idea that this here, which is causing me some problems, you know, I'm very unhappy about Ukraine and whatever, you know, and, 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 uh, and losing the house, you know, that's upsetting. One I know I get very things. sidetracked on that because it's my bugbear, you know, it's my, it's my target because I'm sick of it, mm. you know. It really, you know, you have to be so, oh, the scientists, <gasps> they're the high priests of this materialist culture. And they're just like those people Martin Luther didn't like, who would run around and sell you a ticket to heaven, you know, for a donation. And they run around and they tell everybody, oh, you'll be fine. You know, don't worry. Well, yeah, you won't have ice cream and you won't get to go to see the Nutcracker or something at Christmas. But you won't suffer. You're going to be anesthetized for eternity. And you won't miss ice cream and Nutcracker for Christmas because you won't even know you ever existed because you don't really exist. You're just a biological robot running around. And in fact, you know, we're so brilliant and great, we want another 20 billion for some more machinery to find out what we don't know, which mm. is all this 97% dark matter and this and that, which otherwise our big model would be meaningless. And we, you know, nobody knows about no big bang. It's just a complete fantasy. And they don't, we, we didn't really see that. We weren't there, you know. And uh, and um, it just we like to blow things up, so we think it's good to call it a bang. You know? It's more really silly. And meanwhile, you ask them back. You know, I finally got there, Phil. Mm. I got there about thirty years of dialogue with these kind of people. I got there. I said, ask them. Oh, okay. You guys are radical empiricists, and people who remember previous lives. That's just anecdotal, so you don't listen to anecdotes, even when it happens to you. I said. You only follow what you discover, what you experience, what you see, what you have hold of. Who grabbed nothing and who got the prize, Nobel Prize, for discovering nothing that waits you at death? Who? Carl Sagan? Did he come tell you that? Hey, guys, <laughs> it's all right. I don't exist. Of course not. And meanwhile, it's your kind. But actually, you know, then if you pause right there, your eyes will roll. They will look like this and they'll be thinking, trying to think up some mathematician who maybe calculated somehow and found that nothing with their magical priestly language, which is just like a bunch of Egyptian hieroglyphs to the ordinary person, makes them feel special, you know. And meanwhile, nobody ever will and nobody ever did discover nothing. So to have a blind faith, that a faith that you're going there. When there's no there, there is nothing but a blind faith in nothing. And that actually is slightly insane. Mm. That is psychotic. It's not actually harmlessly so. Because then you spread that in the planet. And then the elites of the planet start getting, you know, reckless. And they put nuclear power plants on top of seismic faults. And they make A-bombs, and they invent weird viruses with gain of function, and they do really crazy things. And they are polluting the shit out of it, and they are letting the petropaths get away with murder. Not only that, do you realize that? 
we spend $500 billion a year of subsidy. I mean, we, the human beings in all the countries, it's only 40 billion in America. Before we pay them for the gas and oil and coal, we subsidize them 40 billion here of our tax money and 500 billion worldwide. Before we buy it back, you know, they dig it up and buy it back and it's wrecking life. Well, Bob, no one can accuse you of being an escapist religious nut. Because non-escape is not your 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 mm. um your engagement and your your uh, passion for uh what what we euphemistically call real life and its consequences is very refreshing uh in, you know, in a world you, where Phil. people might dismiss things as uh your concerns as thank you Phil. illusory maya <laughs> Uh, right. But speaking of nothing, yes. One, one, <laughs> and speaking of science, yes. I'm going to conflate two of my questions for you yes. now. In, in you have called the historic Buddha, yes, uh, a scientist, super scientist, super Einstein, and the other related question. Speaking of nothingness, is I wanted to ask you to clarify another term that I find often mis understood and misused in Buddhism, which is shunyata, and people, the the whole notion of emptiness and Buddha as a science. Take it away. (laughs) Okay, so so what emptiness is, you know, it's meant to be a little shocking by Buddha because, of course, the source of all our problems is that we're full of ourselves Mm. too much and in the wrong way. As, as my old geishe, my Mr. Miyage, original root geishe said, my root spiritual friend, you know, who helped me with friendly facts, uh, uh, the old Mongolian, uh, he said, people are not wrong that they're real. They think they're real. But where they go wrong is then they think they're really real. <laughs> <laughs> Only real. That's right. And, and, uh, and so the emptiness is meant to be when you discover that there's no core, irreducible, absolute you in there. You're a relational being. And uh, which, in a way, the material scientists have helped us with in the sense that some more old-fashioned type of spiritualities would sort of posit that there's a little homunculus, a little mini Phil Goldberg or Bob Thurman sort of sitting in the heart or in the forehead in the brain that Woody Allen famously made it famous in one of his movies where he, he was in, he was up in the forehead. I think Burt Reynolds was guiding the robot. <laughs> and then he, Ru, Ru, he, Rudy, uh, Woody, he bailed out as a sperm to go and find out more about life. As, as you may recall, wearing a weird sperm suit. And uh, <laughs> I don't think he realized he was going down the central channel and out the, out the phallus to be born in a womb. I don't think he quite realized. <laughs> but he did say he was a sperm and he was bailing out and going down the, the sushumna, you know, of, of the Indian yogis. But I don't think he specified that. that no, right? he wouldn't have. I don't think so. But it, it, he was subliminally doing that. But anyway, point is, we know there's no homunculi in there. So that's helpful materially, at least about the body. But we do kind of have a homunculus of our self-image, whatever it is. That somewhere, and you know, even maybe there's some neuroscientists hope they're going to find it, the little Bob Thurman like owl that's in there or whatever it is. <laughs> but there is no such thing anyway. But so the point is, Buddha discovered that, and it's a very profound thing. You become transparent to yourself, that experience, and you realize, therefore, that when you have a thought in your mind like "I gotta go get that" or "I hate that," those are not coming from some absolute source. You don't have to follow that impulse. You can say, well, why do you have to? Or why do you do that? You can reason with yourself, you know, when you know that your impulse is not coming from any absolute center that is presumed to be there instinctually by us. And Buddhism is so, the Buddhist therapy for that is so deep and profound that it actually can remove instincts. It can go into the unconscious and completely get rid of such impulses, you know, 
or rather take the energies and decathect them out of having to cause you to, to be the slave of eros and thanatos, dear old Freud's eros and thanatos that, that drag us around, you know. So, you know, it's a very deep psychology where they say not only do you have a subconscious, which they did say thousands of years before Freud, but that you can be conscious of the subconscious. You can look into it, you can find it, and you can take the energy away from the bad bad habits in the subconscious, instinctual habits, you know, animal habits coming from when we were, you know, wild animals and eating the persons in front of us or being et by them, you know, which is the suffering of the animal. We got to where we could chat first. <laughs> and that's how we had time to develop language, I, I believe, in my theory. But anyway, so so uh, so the point is our arrogance as materialists, before that it was arrogance as the only Christians or the only Abrahamics in the world, and the natives you know, were all connected to nature. They didn't really know that we knew who the real God was, and he made us the chosen, all different types of chosen, any among them, you know, with all our inner varieties. And then we shifted that over to the materialist thing. We know how to manage the planet, and which is obviously wrong because we're destroying it. So we're finally now waking up to that, and we just hope that we will in time, you know. And... Uh, so that's where emptiness is a wonderful thing. What it is, is really Buddha's discovery of relativity. Mm. Einstein gets rightful praise for his theory of relativity, special and general, and et cetera. But he left a few intact absolutes like speed of light. And, um, and you know, he was going to get a grand unified. He, wouldn't, he didn't go for the uncertainty the openness to keep discovering more about reality that the quantum people told them we better do that now in 1926. He said, no, God does not play dice. And so he didn't, he wanted to find a certainty of a theory. But the real scientific method is you, theory is less than experience. So you constantly theory, you know, Karl Popper theory is hypothesis awaiting further confirmation or falsification by more experience more experimental data or experiential data. And so my point is, Buddha discovered thousands of years earlier that you can't pin reality down, but if you're wide open to it, you can experience it very effectively and helpfully to yourself and others. And that actually we are luckily, as human, sort of between the gods and animals, we are kind of in a very good position to have an intelligence that can figure out how what what the real nature of our interrelatedness is, and uh, and yet we're not so complacently happy in some heavenly plane that we will just ignore that and think we'll be there forever. We we realize how vulnerable we are as as a less powerful, very sensitive but less powerful animal. So so therefore, it's our opportunity to fully understand, and he did that. And but then the, the the problem with people they don't get it. He emphasized the emptiness because that's an openness. Maybe the ultimate translation really should be openness, mm. unless we're really after a serious narcissist. We want to say void. You're void. You, Mister Trump. There's no Trump <laughs> in there. You're void of Trumps. You know, and so relax and realize you have to be nice to people. You know, mm. be nice to your niece and go and let her give you some therapeutic affection, which you need, which you need in your completely demented thing of you, of you're the one, you know, you're the, you're, you're the real one, you know. And, uh, and so my point is, the discovery of relativity was an empirical discovery, because, you know, he, he, he learned to operate the computer of the human nervous system so well that it self-diagnosed and it became realized that everything about everything is completely interrelated to everything else because everything is empty of any non-relative essential component that makes relationship relating problematic mm. because remating is natural and, and it's only a matter of how to optimize the relating. And clearly the way of optimizing is to be wide open to what reality is. And in that case, you will be absolutely effective in dealing with it. And and of course, this is really hard for us because we're scared of infinity. We're scared of getting beyond where we think we got control of things. And so, and that's why the spiritual life really begins with facing death in some way, 
and really because that's where people realize they're not in control on a visceral level. But the point is, if you really are wide open, it's no more no more frightening than going to town where you could be dead. You know, you live every moment as if it was your last. And, you know, an enlightened person does. But to whatever degree they do, they are. that's where enlightenment is. That's why Eckhart Tolle is so effective, his teaching, because he brings you into this is the biggest thing and you're going on is now. Even though you can't find the moment, I teased him when we had lunch. <laughs> where is the present you know you know it's like a line in geometry has no width right to be a proper line so a more a, so a split second a moment or now has no duration so it's never there it's just past collapsing into the future and uh, you're collapsing both directions you know dragging your resentments and dissatisfactions along into some terrifying anticipated things you're anxious about and bitter about the past anxious about the future those things are colliding and so then you say that now you convince yourself it's the now by kind of not thinking in the direction. And as soon as you say, and as soon as you say now, you're no longer it's then. Exactly, exactly. Well, I told him that. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, he really needs to try to work on defining the now he's leading his disciples into mm. as including the whole past and future. Because mm. that's Buddha's now. He's so open, he or she, he or she or it, whatever Buddha is, is so open that you know they're everywhere in time, simultaneously, like infinite in space, and they can be born. They can be multiple incarnations. You know, mm. Nirmalakaya means you responding to you are vast. You are one with the vast field of you know infinite energy. You know, and and then this is my favorite thing. You know, dark matter and energy. Dark matter, we only call they only call it dark because they can't see it. Right. And they assume when you can't see, that's dark. And they are all light. But then suddenly they got shocked that the yang, because they all want to be yang, you know, because they're all men. Well, then there's a few women have managed to get in into the into the control room of the machinery, barely proving to Larry Summers and other such morons that they can count and they can <laughs> add up A2 and two. You know, which they really shouldn't have to prove because they're smarter than men. Actually, they're they're more into relativity than men are naturally. You know, but anyway, I'm sorry, I'm digressing, but uh, because you're making, <laughs> making me good mood. So, so the point is that um, uh, I forgot again. I keep forgetting the point. You know, I, I don't know. I I'll get you back to it. But okay. First, I I wanted something you uh, said. Oh, yes, yeah. so openness, I'm sorry, that's the point, openness. Yeah. So given openness of space and time, we're into, uh, the, all that we're interrelated to is infinite. So the more, more of it that we learn to identify with as part of our life, by being nonviolent, saving other lives, you know, bringing other things to, you know, cheering up lives rather than taking them, you know, the more we do that, given an infinite future, you know, because who can say there's a limit? Infinity is obvious in all the in space and time. And then, how, why couldn't we become infinite, given infinite future? And actually, we might discover we already are. We're already one being already. But you know, then. We, but this is the you know this is the great thing. Ramdas has discovered this now. He wants to go off and be one, and get out of his painful body. And he only stayed in it out of compassion for all his students. For so long, mm. but 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 you know, we're in quite a lot of pain. You know, I really admire him. I think he truly is yeah. a saint. But then he got to be with the one. But I know very well. Right now, he's completely aware. He's counting, counting the sales figures in the new biography of Ramda because he's very practical. <laughs> yeah, he always was, and he's all over the place because he's an arhat saint, like an arhat saint. And you know, he's where is he gonna go? Which is he gonna be a Hindu boo as he was finally? He was only a Hindu, but then he was a Hindu Jew, I think. Really, he was <laughs> I I helped him to become a Hindu Jew. So because there's no difference, Hindu and Buddhist. Uh now I, that's where I wanted to go, Bob. Ah, um, okay. Because okay. I have the advantage of not being an academic. And so when I hear <laughs> academics splitting hairs between Hinduism and Buddhism as if, as right. if they were uh, warring tribes, I think I don't get it because I see more similarity and of harmony course. 
Of course. And wasn't Buddha a yogi? And so you're, you're doing sure. a lot about the intersection of Buddhism and yoga now. And I'd you love know, to hear I, you know, you know, what's you know, happening. Phil, I, my mind has been blown the last year by Pradeep Gokhale, who did a new translation of the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, oh. and which he shows. I, first, I learned this that I didn't know. That the the first written version of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, the aphorisms that we know of, is embedded in the Patanjala Shastra, you know, secondary derivative of the name, you know, that's Patanjali Shastra, written by Vyasa, who wrote everything right from the Mahabharata on. <laughs> but that Vyasa is way later than the Mahabharata. He is in dialogue with Vasubandhu all over the place, debating with him, arguing with him, and actually some of the aphorisms show complete interconnectedness with Vasubandhu. So, you know, the original memorized ones that were that the commentator did, did or didn't add to is not clear, you know, but that's okay, because that made me realize Patanjali probably is the same Patanjali at all, who wrote the marvelous Mahabhasya, great commentary to Panini, which is just around, there was a huge point is, there was a huge renaissance in India in Buddha's time. And and and, and being a Buddha, excuse me, excuse me, I'm in the middle of a podcast. I'll be down soon. Sure. And and uh, I'm short near the end. And uh oh yeah, so I, I do have a meeting a little after four. So but let me finish this. It's so much fun. Patanjali mm -hmm. is Buddha. He's a, and he's not only that, there's a myth, he's a Naga. He's connected to Nagas. The great serpent dragons, you know, and Buddha remember handed Mahayana sutras to the Nagas to keep it safekeeping, since he didn't want to spread them in Vedist India until the mendicants had a little bit of land <laughs> and some safe space asylums out of you know, the control of the kings, you know, and. Uh, so that there's that there's more a little more individualism and not the monistic thing that yeah it's all one and you guys are the feet you know and you other people are the belly and I don't know who's the cleaning the poop but it's all one so don't mind you don't don't try to change that and we're the nobles and we're the brahmins you know we're you know the casting so the only reason that after the Muslims and the, the Hindus would never have destroyed the Buddhist monastic universities they used to go to them. And they they could go without having to be a an ist, you know, a Buddhist. They could go and get learning about poetry and about medicine and about even meditation, whatever. And uh, they were public servants, publicly serving institutions. But the Muslims didn't need people being taught nonviolence and whatever, and they didn't need idle people who are who are simply mendicants and are not working for the state. So they burned them all down. And then after that, the caste, and then the, then they also foisted the caste system, and they re-intensified it on purpose, because that's an ancient Indian social management tool, as you see in the Arta Shastra, is make a strict caste system, and then the people will not revolt against you, because they'll be divided amongst themselves. Mm. And so that's where the big Buddhist-Hindu thing comes. The Hindu thing about Atma, they use to encourage people to open up to open space and uh, and think of it as themselves don't think they're getting lost in the nothingness or something but they use anatma to get there by going na iti na iti na iti na iti all the small self identities and similarly as nagarjuna says buddha doesn't just dogmatically teach anatma he also teaches atma when it's necessary and anatma when it's necessary he's a therapist he's not a dogmatic fanatic He's helping people what they need. And uh, so he's just, you know, so therefore he's a Hindu because he's happening in India, but also they're all Buddhists because they're all seeking enlightenment and liberation and moksha. And that is the Buddha movement. Yajnavalkya is a Buddha. Patanjali is a Buddha. They're all talking to different audiences. And Patanjali with his, his Shadanga, his six branches beyond the two ethical ones, Yama and Samyama, mm -hmm. they're the same as in Tantra, Naropa, six yogas. They're exactly the same terms. So he's already, they already know about Tantra, those yogis. 
and they know about the central channels and things. So he doesn't mention an aphorism, particularly the Sushumna Ida Pingal. So he doesn't, because they're keeping it more quiet, the real human potential. They're not going into neuroscience right away because they, they don't want to have some weird king, emperor, or dictator to go and start like experimenting on people's brains and you know, do nasty mm. things. So they keep this, this unfold in 500 year increments by these great siddhas, you know. And then yeah. I love it. I love it. So anyway, he blew my mind, Gokhale. You really got to see that new translation and commentary of uh, on the Yoga Sutras. And then the, the end of the this period, when the after around the time the Buddhist thing is being burned down, you have this uh, Amrita Siddhi scholarship by Malinson. And he has this wonderful statement he makes. The Mahasiddhas ensured that Buddhism cheated death in, in post-Islamic India, you know, medieval mm. India, because the Siddhas kept it alive. In the form of the of the great, you know, like Kabir, you know, and all the, even even they infiltrated the Sufis, the Islam with the Atar, you know, Al Sindhi, the Indian was the first Sufi, you know, in the Atar's lineage. You know, so anyway, it's anyway. I'm, I'm thrill at discovering um, new aspects of the deep wisdom of India and following Dalai Lama's fourth aim which is to bring back the full dimension of Indian inner science, which was a conversation between different kinds of enlightened people to mm. make it best for different audiences within the very complex, you know, multilingual, multinational uh, nature of India, you know, the great Mahab the great Indian subcontinent. Well, I really look forward to uh, hearing more about this as you delve into what your this intersection of yoga and uh, and and Buddhism, even the title of your book, Wisdom is Bliss, it sounds so yogic. You know, you, you could have said, you know, Satchit Ananda, and uh, it would sound sure. very much like, you know, Wisdom is Bliss. Sure. And and um, I will tell listeners, you will uh, want to go to BobThurman.com which is Bob's website, learn more about him and his Vajra Yoga uh, retreat coming up in uh, 2023 in Italy and other things. Bob, thank you so much for this time. I know you have to run and uh, greatly appreciate it and all the good work you've done and continue to do. May you live long and Prosper, as they say on, on television. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's a Dr. Spark thing. Dr. We'll, Spark is just Manjushri, you know. We'll look forward to more, more okay. insights and I love it. I love your 2.0, and I'd love to go with you to India, but I probably, if I can afford it, I'm going to do some more tours there, too. In my, in my, oh, good for you. Well, we really had fun in Dharamsala in India we, and in Delhi too, you know, we really did. But it's a little expensive now, the fancy yeah. place. I'm but looking forward to being back after COVID. Yeah. Yeah, Thank so, you again. Okay. And Thank listeners. You. Bye to everyone. And Bye. Lots of luck. Dedicate the merit to everybody becoming a Buddha soon. So not a Buddhist, but a Buddha. We want Jubus, Himbus, Chrisbus, Mubus, Musbus. But then that means staying whatever they were, whatever their grandmother was. That's the Lama's thing. Not convert, but learn from the other traditions and don't convert and do whatever makes grandma happy. Okay? Uh, except, except That's how we dedicate food. All the best. Lots of oh. love. Okay, thank you. Bye, yes, Bob. I'm coming. Listeners, thank you, thank thank you for you. listening. And, uh, saying goodbye to our listeners now. Thank you. Please subscribe. Tell your friends about uh, Spirit Matters. Email me. Uh, check out my website, philipgoldberg.com. Get on my mailing list. I promise I don't send obnoxious amounts of messages, just some informative things from time to time. Uh, email me with your suggestions. Give us some feedback on our I interviews. And I will too, Phil. And I'll come back another time if you invite me. Oh, you, you, you have an open invitation. I can't even remember what I'm talking about without someone asking me a good question. So another <laughs> time you. I'll see you. Okay, all the best. All the best. Bye, listeners. See you next time.
next time. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.